to turn with me to the book of 1 John, chapter 3. First John chapter 3. I'm actually going to begin reading from the end, the last two verses of chapter 2, and read into chapter 3 a little bit, just to sort of situate ourselves in, in the text. First John chapter 2 then, beginning in verse 28, the apostle John writes, And now, little children... Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Our focus for today is going to be Verse 4 of chapter 3, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would... Send your Spirit to help us to understand. Lord, we ask that the Scriptures would be illuminated clearly and that we would understand uh, what you would have for us to learn. Lord, we ask that you would help us to obey. Father, we ask that you would convict us of sin. For we know that when we see just how great our sin is, we'll see just how great our Savior is. And so we ask that you would do that for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last week we began by validating our assumptions that the term scandalon, which is used in several places there in Matthew chapter 18, is adequately translated 
as a temptation or a cause to sin. Remember, the majority of the translation of that term usually produces the word stumbling block or stone of stumbling, but in the English Standard Version which we use, we, we read the words temptations to sin or causes to sin. And so I sort of began by validating that assumption. And then we also began to delve into another assumption that we as Christians and that we as a church Uh, I believe, make too often, and that is that we all have a good, biblical, consistent understanding of what sin is. Remember I said that we can talk about sin all day, and I can preach about sin all day, and we can say, Holy Spirit, come and convict us of sin all day long, and we can even leave thinking that we have really been convicted of, of this sin or that sin, but if we don't consistently agree and confess across the board, what is sin, then we may all leave with different attitudes, different thoughts, different perspectives. One person could be living in outright sin and another person not see that it's a sin. And so we have to agree, we have to come to terms with what sin is. And so we defined sin and it's, it's many, uh, the many various terms that are used in Scripture as an offense, a violation, a revolt, a perversion, a a trespassing, a going beyond some sort of objective standard, some sort of limitation. <coughs> then we dissected that idea of sin into two separate categories. There are universal sins and there are particular sins. Now today we're going to take up the first of two passages that help us understand this idea of universal sins. That is, a sin, an action or a deed that is sinful for anyone at any time and in any place. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we come to our primary text, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. We read this last week and we've read it already. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now what I want to do is give a little bit of an intro to the passage, which you have your sermon guide there, introduce the passage, then we'll do a little exposition of the passage, and then we'll sort of launch from that into our study of sin. So we begin with (coughs) the context of this statement. What I want to do is situate us in the book of 1 John. As many of you know, 1 John is a book that is written to give us tests of genuine faith. In other words, if someone is struggling with assurance, they're wondering whether or not they are a Christian, you could send them to 1 John and say, read 1 John. And what John does in this epistle is he goes back and forth, writing to this church, back and forth giving tests of right doctrine and right practice. He will explain to them the truth, what they should believe, and then He will explain to them how they should be living. He's telling them, if if you want to know if you're a true Christian, you make sure that you believe the right thing, and that that belief, the Holy Spirit working in you, is producing a life that is in accordance with the truth. And so you see that back and forth in this epistle. Right doctrine, right practice. Right doctrine, right practice. And as he's doing this, John also contrasts believers with unbelievers. In other words, he'll say, here's 
the wrong doctrine, here's the right doctrine. Here's the wrong practice, and here's the right practice. And hopefully by the end of the letter, you could read it and look at your life and say, well, I align with the believers, or I align with the unbelievers. That's what he's doing in this letter. And so what, in the, the verses that we've read, beginning in verse 29 of chapter 2, John addresses or describes believers. He says, if you know that He is righteous, speaking of Christ, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. So if you want to know if you're a Christian, well, look at your life. Do you live like Jesus? That's the believer. In, in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. See, John is laying out a few of the many traits that will characterize a Christian man or woman. A Christian will practice righteousness. A Christian will hope in God. And a Christian will purify themselves. And notice both of the descriptions of morality here are describing a general pattern of life. And this is very important. Notice in verse 29, everyone who practices righteousness. He's talking about the, the way you live. It's a practice. Everyone who hopes in Him purifies Himself. This is a practice. See, the idea here is that a Christian man or woman lives a life that is characterized by righteousness, that's characterized by purification, or we might call that sanctification. John is describing lifestyles. But then we move to the unbeliever, and we come to verse 4. He switches his attention Notice the correlation here in verse 29 of chapter 2. Everyone who practices righteousness. Then in verse 4 of chapter 3, everyone who practices or makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now again, to be sure, when it comes to comparing a Christian to a non-Christian, he's describing your pattern of life, not a single act of sin. Now to prove that, and this is why I read a little further, to prove that we can see there in verse 6, John says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In verses 8 and 9, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. John is not saying anyone who sins is lost. Anyone who commits a sin is an unbeliever. As a matter of fact, he even says at the beginning of his letter that if we say we have no sin, that, that we're liars. It, we all sin. He's talking about the pattern of life of a person, their overall lifestyle. Now, that's what John's doing. Now, having situated ourselves in the passage, let's zero in on our text with a little exposition, just briefly. First, we see in verse, verse 4 of chapter 3, the universal stride of fallen men. John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. So we have the terminology of universality, everyone. This is across the board. And again, he's speaking of a lifestyle. Everyone who practices 
Everyone who makes a practice of sin practices lawlessness. So again, across the board, the pattern of life of fallen, sinful, unregenerate men is that they practice sin. Sin is their common conversation. And again, I'm using that word not in terms of a, a, a volleying dialogue, but in their way of life. Their conversation is characterized by sin. <coughs> a believer, verse two, or chapter 2, verse 29, a believer practices righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 4, an unbeliever practices sin. And then John says that practicing sin is the same as practicing lawlessness. And we're going to come back to this, but lawlessness, again, is a life characterized by a pattern of rejection or ignoring God's law. So in other words, everyone universally whose lives are characterized by sin, all of those people's lives, in their lives, they are practicing a rejection of God's law. Everyone who makes a practice of sin practices lawlessness. Second heading of this brief exposition, the foundational folly of sin. We might ask at this point, having read the first part of the verse, why is it that lives characterized by sin are also characterized by a rejection of God's law? You see, he says everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. But what is it about sin, practicing sin, that, that draws this connection with lawlessness? Why are the two so connected? Well, he answers that in the last part of the verse. Sin is lawlessness. Literally, John writes, the sin is the lawlessness. And, and when it's phrased in that way, we, we can basically interchange the terms. <coughs> These words are interchangeable. Sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness is sin. They mean the same thing to John. That's why there's this connection. So if you're practicing sin, you're practicing lawlessness by definition. And then we come to this word lawlessness, which is important for us today. Lawlessness. Anomia. Now if we... This, this prefix ah, it, it means no, or we might... We have prefixes like un or non or anti. That's kind of this idea of ah. And then nomos, which means law. We have the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, second law. The word nomos means law. <clears throat> and so, anomia, no law. But this does not mean, like we would often use the suffix, L-E-S-S, to mean without. Like there is none. If we would say, I'm, I'm homeless, that means I do not have a home. But this term lawlessness does not mean that this person or these people do not have a law, but that their lives are characterized by lawlessness. It's a, a pattern of their lives where they, or the general pattern of their lives is that they reject God's law. They ignore it. They act like it's not there even though it is. So... If sin is the rejection of God's law, lawlessness, then any time anyone anywhere spurns or rejects or ignores God's law, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl is sinning. You follow me? Anytime you reject, spurn, ignore, disobey God's law, it's a sin. There's no situation 
where it's okay to break God's law. Every time, anywhere, anybody breaks God's law, they are sinning. Now we come to this idea of God's law. Commentators, again, usually will refer to the divine law. Now we could say the divine law would be any moral imperative or prohibition ever given by God. If God says it, it's law, no matter what, no matter where. He says it, it's law, it stays, it stands. The Word of our God lasts forever. So we could take that approach, or we could say that this divine law, the law of God, is succinctly stated in the Ten Commandments, what we often call God's moral law. And I would argue every command, every prohibition ever given by God to anyone in any situation could accurately be categorized under one or more of the Ten Commandments. In other words, whereas our nation has to constantly fill books and pages and pages and libraries of laws, God settled it all with ten. And if we obey the ten, we've obeyed them all. So again, to summarize the point I'm trying to make, Anytime, anyone, anywhere spurns, breaks, rejects, disobeys one of the Ten Commandments, that person is sinning. Now, that seems very simple. It actually seems almost simplistic. We might would say, well, that's a, that's a children's lesson, right? That's Sunday school, the Ten Commandments. It's generally considered to be one of the most basic principles of Christian ethics. I said yesterday, I was speaking with the men at the, the prayer meeting, that even those who are not Christians often assume that Christians are the people with the Ten Commandments. Oh, y'all are those people, that's your list of rules. And in our, I believe in our, our attempting to fix that, caricature or address that or maybe even blur ourselves back into society, we have fought too hard to say, no, 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 not the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Commandments, when actually we should say, yeah, the Ten Commandments. It's that simple. It really is that simple. Again, not simplistic. It seems like it, but it is that simple. And I believe the reason that we think that that is just too simple is because we have completely misconstrued, misunderstood God's law. How many of us have ever heard a sermon series on the Ten Commandments? How many of us have ever read a book on the Ten Commandments? The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is devoted entirely to the praise of the law of God. And yet so many so-called Christians know so little about God's law that they can't even quote them in order. And so, because we know so little about God's moral law, we've misconstrued it, misapplied it, misunderstood it. We, we think, well, that's just child's play. That's a child's lesson. Or it might work in the reverse. We just assume that's child's play, and so we don't study any further. So I want to get into just a brief overview of God's law. But before I get into that, I want to read to you what I think most professing Christians think the Ten Commandments are. So this would be, and I'll, I'll turn there, and we'll be there in a minute, in Exodus chapter 20. This would be 
what most Christians believe the Ten Commandments are, beginning in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And the preacher spoke all these words, saying, I am your pastor and your preacher, who tells you what you should and should not do. Commandment number one, then, don't have one of those Buddha statues in your house like they have at the Asian restaurants. Commandment number two, don't have one of those Buddha statues in your house like they have at those Asian restaurants. Commandment number three, don't use the phrase, Oh my God. Commandment number four, don't work on Sunday, unless of course you have to work on Sunday, in which case, do as you please. Commandment number five, obey your parents when they're around. Or I might add, if you think they're worth obeying. Commandment number six, don't kill people. We've got that one pretty down pat. Commandment number seven, once you're married, don't cheat on your spouse. Commandment number eight, don't take any item from the store that you haven't paid for. Commandment number nine, don't say things that are clearly not true. And commandment number ten, don't worry about commandment number ten because it's not that important. If we're honest, that's how we perceive the ten commandments. Even if we won't admit it, if we look at our lives and we watch what we do, that's the what we think the ten commandments say. And that's why we consider them elementary. We see the law that says... You shall not steal. And we think, oh, don't take anything from the store. That's easy. God, I would never take anything from the store. But I wonder how many times we have stolen and we didn't know it. So now, I want to take some time and examine these Ten Commandments. Now, this is not going to be a detailed exposition. We could spend literally months, and men have done it, months of Sunday morning and Sunday evening walking through God's law. That's not my goal here. My goal is just, just to fly over it. I just want to swoop down and just graze the top of it. Because just in doing that, I believe we'll see that God's law is much more broad than we understand. And remember that as we're walking through God's law, we're doing so with the assumption that anytime anyone anywhere breaks one of these commandments... That person is sinning, or to be more personal, anytime you, no matter where you are, who you are, who you're with, or what you're doing, anytime you break one of these Ten Commandments, you are sinning against a holy God and thus incur His wrath toward your sin. So first, I'll just read them. This is the actual Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, the Decalogue. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. <coughs> Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it 
You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now what I want to do is just break or take some time and just through several main headings give you some principles, <clears throat> principles that you would need just to begin studying God's law. In other words, these things are things that you need to know first. Before you get into the actual commandments, you need to know all of these things first. So number one, the law of God comes to us in two tables. The law is given in two tables. The first table consists in commandments one through four. And these commandments deal with our duty toward God. I'll summarize them. Commandment number one, nothing takes the place of God in your heart or your life. He is supreme. Commandment number two, you must worship the one true God only in the ways He has commanded. There is no room for creativity. Commandment number three, do not take it upon yourself to represent this God only to fail at representing Him properly. Commandment number four, observe God's day following God's pattern. Halt your earthly labors and selfish pursuits and use it as a day fully devoted to the worship of God, both in public and in private. Here in, these, in this first table, God tells us to sanctify His being, sanctify His worship, sanctify His name, and sanctify His day. That's the first table. The second table, commandments 5 through 10, deal with our duty towards other men, other people. I'll summarize them. We must honor all of the God-given authorities starting at home. Do not unlawfully take the life of another person. Do not engage in marital intimacy with anyone other than your spouse. Do not take anything to be yours that God has not given to you. Do not be deceptive. And do not allow your heart to desire the things that God has given to others. God has called us to sanctify His constituted authority Sanctify life, sanctify marriage, sanctify private property, sanctify our speech, and sanctify our hearts. These are the two tables of the law. How we deal with God and how we deal with men. Jesus summarizes these two tables in Matthew chapter 22. Remember, and I'll read it for you, this lawyer comes up and they're trying to test Jesus. It says, one of them a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, what we tend to do there 
We hear the lawyer say, which is the great commandment, and we say, we assume, Jesus has got to pick out of the ten. But then he doesn't pick out of the ten, and so we assume that Jesus has now given some sort of new, updated command. That Jesus is here created some super spiritual directive that characterized his ministry over and against the cruel, crotchety, scroogey ministry of the God of the Old Testament. You see, that God, he had ten rules, but Jesus comes along to show there's really only two. And one that's the most important. That's what we think, but actually, Jesus here is just quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5, which Moses preached to the Israelites as he delivered to them the law that God had already given to them 40 years earlier at Sinai. Jesus is summarizing the first table of the law. If you will love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, then you will sanctify His being, sanctify His worship, sanctify His name, and sanctify His day. He's summarizing the first table. But then Jesus continues, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Again, this is not some new rule. This is not some law of Christ, as the New Covenant theologians would assume. This is just Jesus quoting from Leviticus 19.18. It was already the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will sanctify God-given authority. You will sanctify life. You will sanctify marriage. You will sanctify private property. You will sanctify your speech. And you will sanctify your heart in regards to other men. Jesus is just summing, summarizing the first and second table of the law. So he was saying, in essence, all of God's commandments are important. Start with your relationship to God, and that will influence your relationship to men. And when you've done all of that, you've obeyed the law. These are both the great commandment because it's a summary of all of God's law. So picture this again. We have libraries and books filled with laws. We're creating new laws every day. And yet God, with unmatched wisdom and pinpoint accuracy, summarizes every single possible principle of godliness with regard to Himself and with regard to others in ten words. Ten commandments given in two tables. Start with God and then move to others. And when you get your relationship with God right, your relationship with others will be right. They are connected. Every wrong you could possibly imagine doing to another person is categorized under one of the last six commandments. Every sin you could ever imagine or, or contrive in your mind against God will fall under the, one of the first four commandments. So then abortion is a sin because it has to do with loving your neighbor, even if they're not born yet. Owning a firearm for the purpose of putting down a would-be attacker has to do with loving your neighbor. Submitting to the governing authorities when it's permissible and does not, they do not ask us to sin or, or forbid us to do that which God has commanded us has to do with honoring your father and your mother. Honor the authorities, start at home, and it goes from there. Correcting a mistake on a receipt where you were undercharged and you noticed it has to do with not stealing. See, we could go on and on and on. Everything we could ever imagine, every moral dilemma is found in, the first, in, in these Ten Commandments. 
Every single imperative God has ever given for every specific situation finds its root in one of the Ten Commandments given under two tables. Secondly, though, we need to understand that the law is also one unified whole. James tells us in James chapter 2 and verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You see here, James uses the giver of the law, God himself, as his reasoning to say that breaking a single command of God is the same as breaking all of the commands of God. The law comes as a unified whole. You cannot separate them from each other. They're all interwoven together. I very often have used the analogy of a window to explain this. If a child hits a baseball and it goes through the kitchen window, we wouldn't say, well, the window's fine. We just need to fix that hole in the middle. And maybe some of those spiderweb cracks coming out. But other than that, the window's fine. No, we wouldn't say that. We would say, the window is broken. You can't piece back together and fix the window when it's broke. It's a hole. If you break it, you break it. You don't put a hole in the window. You break the window. It's all one piece. And James illustrates this here with the Ten Commandments. The law of God, he uses murder and adultery. He says if you break either one of them, but you don't break the other one, you're still guilty of breaking the law. You see, it's a one unified whole. And so, to speak in a way as to be deceptive causes you to be just as guilty as if you had just taken your wife to the abortion mill to have your child murdered. To steal time from your employer brings upon you the same guilt as if you had just spent the evening with a prostitute while your wife was at home with the kids. To use the Lord's Day for self-satisfying pleasure brings upon you the same guilt as if you offer a banana and some incense to that little Buddha statue at the Asian restaurant. It's one whole. You can say all day long, well, I break this commandment, but I don't break those commandments. You're still guilty of breaking the law. Now, of course, we don't believe that all sins are equal in their punishment or in the detriment that they do to yourself or to others, but they are still a part of the unified whole. When God sees you break a commandment, He doesn't say you're guilty of breaking a commandment. You're guilty of breaking the law. Now we can see why the psalmist writes in Psalm 119 and 120, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. As he wrote about the law and he began to unpack all of these things about the law, he said, I fear, or my, my flesh trembles for fear. I'm afraid of your judgments. So the law comes in two tables. The law is one unified whole. Thirdly, the law comes in both positive and negative commands. In other words, every commandment, whether it is in itself a positive injunction or a negative prohibition necessarily assumes the opposite positive injunction or negative prohibition. In other words, every commandment is at least two commandments. 
I'll explain this. When God says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which, by the way, does not say you shall not lie. It says you shall not bear false witness. Lying is assumed in this commandment. But when He says you shall not bear false witness, we do not assume that He is, would expect us to stand silently in a court of law. This is a law commandment, a courtroom scene here. And if they ask you about your dealings or what you know, God is not saying, don't say anything. Just, just let them figure it out on their, on their own. Now, when He says, don't bear false witness, He is assuming you will also bear true witness. He's commanding you to tell the truth. And that's why when we put our hand on the Bible, we say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because being silent doesn't work. Because you see, it is a negative prohibition, but it assumes a positive injunction. And so not only must we not commit adultery, but we must be faithful to our spouses positively. We must give them all of the attention that they deserve as bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. We can't say, well, God told me not to commit adultery, so I'm just going to sit here. No, He expects us, and we see this later in Scriptures. We're commanded to actively engage in loving our spouse. Not only must we not worship God in self-contrived ways, but we must worship Him in the ways that He has commanded. Just because God says, don't make graven images, that doesn't mean we say, well, I'm not, I guess I won't worship then. I guess I'll just sit here. No, He's assuming we will worship Him rightly. Not only must we cease our regular labor on the Sabbath, but we must engage ourselves in public and private worship. Many have thought this in history. They say, well, he says don't work on Sunday, so they just lay in bed and keep the covers up under their nose and say, well, it's the Lord's day. It's the Sabbath. I can't do anything, but that's not what it says. It says cease your labors, but use it as a Sabbath to the Lord. It assumes you will engage in worship. It's His day. Uh, an explicit example of this in Scripture is the, uh, the parapet law in Deuteronomy 22.8. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 8, we read, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. Now this is a case law, which means it is a, a logical or practical outworking of the moral law in everyday life. Now in the Ten Commandments, God said you shall not kill or you shall not murder. You shall not unlawfully take a person's life. But the word for murder also covers someone losing their life because of your negligence, because you weren't paying attention, you weren't careful. And so not only are we to not murder... But God commands us to take every reasonable precaution to protect and preserve the lives of people around us. And so here the example is the parapet, the railing around the roof of a house. See, you could it's your house, you build it. Someone goes up there and they're not paying attention and they fall off the roof. We could say, you know, what a moron. They fell off the roof. Who doesn't know that to fall off the roof is going gonna, is gonna to bring death? But the law here says that you will have blood guilt on you if they fall off. Why? Because you didn't take the precautions necessary to keep them safe. And so, driving recklessly 
is a breaking of a positive injunction that is assumed in the sixth commandment. It is thus a failure to love your neighbor. When God says, you shall not kill, that means we need to make sure that we're keeping those around us safe in all, in all the ways that we can. We would also say the same thing for socialism, socialized education, socialized health care and the like. To sign up and voluntarily receive money that the government has wrongfully, coercively taken from the masses to use for your own benefits is a breaking of the positive injunction of the Eighth Commandment. God says, you shall not steal. We'd say, well, I didn't steal. I just took stolen money. But that wouldn't work anywhere else. You, you, if someone robs a bank and they say, here, just, just take this. You're going to go to jail if you take the money. It's stolen money. And I think in your minds you're probably thinking, yeah, but it's, it's not wrong for the government to take our money because the government made it a law for them to take our money. They also made it a law for us to kill our unborn children. That doesn't make it right. So, anytime, and I hope that you will, anytime that you spend studying or meditating on the Ten Commandments, if they are prohibiting a certain action, they're saying, don't do this, then ask yourself, what then does it positively command me to do? He's not saying, sit there and don't move until Jesus comes back. We must do every commandment is at least two commandments by logical deduction. And that's why the psalmist would write in Psalm 119.73, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. This is big. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done here. Just in ten commandments. Fourthly, we need to understand that in the ten commandments, within every commandment is the assumption of both inward and outward conformity. That is to say, they all demand obedience both in your actions and in your heart and your mind. The primary example of this in the Ten Commandments is the Tenth Commandment that deals with coveting. It forbids us to covet. And I believe this is the reason this command is in the Ten Commandments. And it deals with the heart. To covet something is to desire in your heart or to lust after something that belongs to someone else. So see, you can covet and not lift a finger. You can covet without breathing. You can covet with your eyes closed. You can lay at home in the bed and covet. God says don't covet. So this shows us that God's law is concerned not only with your physical actions, not only with what you say and what you do and where you go, but with your heart and your mental preoccupations with the things of this world. Paul says in Romans 7, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. You see, we're all grained or ingrained with this idea that as long as I don't do anything, I don't act on the inclination, I don't act on the desire, then I'm not in sin. But Paul is saying this idea of coveting, which requires no action at all, it's just a sin of the heart and the mind, we, we would have thought that wasn't that big of a deal until he gives us the law and we find out that the law deals with our deeds as well as our desires. Jesus does this same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. This seems to be Jesus' primary focus as He exposits the law in the Sermon on the Mount. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Again in verses 27 and 28 of the same chapter, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now hopefully you remember what Jesus was doing here. He's taking the commonly held misconceptions and misinterpretations of the law and He is explaining the true original interpretation and application. You have heard that it was said. You've been told something wrong, but I say to you, that's what He's doing. He's explaining it to them. And so the prohibition against unlawful taking of life also deals with the very heart attitude that might lead to murder, but it might not. It's just just in your heart. He doesn't say, well, as long as you don't act on it, you're fine. No, he says, to do it in your heart brings you the same guilt. The prohibition against adultery also assumes under its category the very looks and desires of the heart that might lead to the physical act, but they don't have to. Just the desire of the heart is, brings upon you the same guilt as committing the sin itself. The prohibition against stealing assumes that you will be content with that which God has given you and will not seek unjust gain. That's the whole point. Be, be content. The command to honor, honor your father and mother assumes not just that you'll say, okay, and obey. It assumes that you will love your father and mother, that you will pray for them, that you will seek to do them good and to do things for them, to take care of them. Later in the New Testament, we find out that that it is the job of the family to take care of the elderly in their families. The first commandment that says, "You You shall have no other God before me, assumes that even in your heart, you won't devise a false God that's made in your own image. As Calvin said, the heart is a, a, a factory of idols. We're just constantly making them up. That's forbidden as well. So again, you may think that you're in the clear because you don't actually steal. You don't actually kill. You don't actually commit adultery. You don't actually lie. You don't actually worship God wrongly. But we find out in the final analysis to even have the desire for such things is to break the law of God. I think we can see why the psalmist would write in Psalm 119.96, I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And then lastly, the thing that we need to understand about God's law is that it is a delineation of God's character. We might be tempted in our fallenness and our sin to still wonder why is it so bad to break a rule? Even if we broke all ten of them, there's only ten. Most of us broke more than ten rules on our first day of middle school. They're just ten rules. Why is it so bad to break just ten rules? Well, ultimately, the reason breaking these commands is so dangerously offensive to God 
is because these Ten Commandments are a delineation of God's own moral perfections. In other words, God used His own character. He used His own view of Himself and His view of His creatures made in His image. And then He made a list of rules that if followed perfectly would guarantee perfect righteousness, the righteousness of God Himself. We see this plainly stated over and over in the Old Testament law sections. One example, Leviticus 19.2, where God says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You see what he's saying. He's saying, here's my law, obey it, be holy, because you're my people and I'm holy and you're supposed to be like me. So here's my law. Be holy, because I'm holy. You should be like me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains and restates this same thing. In Matthew 5.20, He begins by saying, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives that list of all of those, you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, teachings, expositing God's moral law with precision and accuracy, explaining the true heart-penetrating interpretation and intentions of the law. And then he closes in Matthew 5, 48 by saying, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So again, why does God take it so seriously when his moral law is broken. It's because his moral law is a description of himself. You see, so when we spurn or belittle or break God's moral law, we are spurning, rejecting God himself. It is to say, God, your moral excellencies are not as attractive to me as this sin. So you see, hopefully, church, that God's moral law is much larger, much more detailed than just ten simple commands that we usually misinterpret anyway. They go to the heart. They deal with your motives. They expand to both positive and negative. They demand positive action from God at all times. They require faultless perfection. Every expectation God has for us with regard to any and every situation we might ever find ourselves is rooted and grounded in the Ten Commandments. Not only must you not do, but you must do. Not only must you not act, but you must not think. You see, this is not child's play. This is not Sunday school here. We can see why the psalmist would write in 119 and verse 20, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I'm taken up with it. So then, we return back to 1 John. And remember what John said. Anyone, anywhere, who fails to meet the standard of this law that we've just begun to analyze, they're sinning. That's sin against God. And... Anyone whose life is characterized by this practice is a lawless person. They are an unsaved man. Remember, the context is, is a lifestyle. The lifestyle is built, or the, the, the 
principle of the lifestyle is built off of the, the foundational principle, breaking God's law is sin. Whoever keeps on breaking God's law keeps on sinning. Whoever lives that lifestyle is not regenerate. They're not a believer. You say, well, I'm struggling with assurance. Do you keep God's law? What does your life look like? That's what John's saying. So, by way of application, our confession outlines for us several specific uses of God's law that I think are helpful. Uh, there, I think there are actually six in the confession. Uh, historically, in, in, in Reformed theology, there are three primary uses of the law. Our confession sort of unpacks them and divides them a little more, um, in, a, in a little more detailed manner. But I want to just give you three of these applications. The law is not just a list of things that you can't do, an assumption of things you must do, but it actually benefits us beyond that. First, the law acts as a rule of life, informing us of the will of God and our duty. It directs and binds us to walk accordingly. In other words, when we study God's law, we see how God expects us to live. Remember, all of the definitions of sin... Iniquity, transgression, sin, trespasses, they all assume an objective standard. What is the standard? God is the standard. God's law is a delineation of God's character. Therefore, God's law is the explanation of how we should live. It is an explanation of the standard. It is an explanation of how God expects us to live. And again, in, in connection with that, when we study God's law... Understanding by whom it was given, we are brought to understand the great necessity of our obedience. In other words, we read the law and we remember our God has given it. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is creator, king, master, sovereign. If He gives a law, He's not throwing it out there as an option. We must obey. You see, Christian morality is not subjective. Christians don't just say, well, I'm going to join the, the, the club or I'm going to join the way, I'm going to join the group. And in doing that, I'm going to sort of bring with it my own way, my own way of thinking, my own way of doing. I'll introduce this and this will be my form of Christianity. But everybody else can have theirs. That's not how God's law works. That's not how Christianity works. It's not done in a vacuum. Christianity, I've often said, is like, like playing for the Lakers. I can't just say, yeah, I play for the Lakers. No, I've got to show you my contract and my jersey and my skills. You see, that, that, that's how it works. You don't just join. You can't just say or identify as. You must obey, submit to the king. Secondly, the law helps us in discovering the sinful pollutions of our natures and hearts and lives. This has been my primary prayer for us today. Surely, in just a, a skimming the top of God's law today, hopefully, you've understood the ease and commonality with which we sin. Not make mistakes or slip-ups or, well, I tried, I didn't make it. No, we sin. And it's, it's so easy, it's so common. We, we do it so often without even knowing it. God's law deals with actions. God's law deals with desires. God's law deals with thoughts and motives. And we sin so often, and we don't even know it. And the law says, see that? 
What you just did there, that was sin. Without it, we wouldn't know. When we realize that all of God's, or when we realize all that God demands of His creatures, surely we as Christians would set out to find out all of the hidden pollution in our hearts and lives. See, God's law is the expectation for all people. But surely Christians would say, well, if God's law shows me the pollution of my nature and heart and life, then I want to set out to find it. I want to know so that I can rid myself of it. Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed man meditates on God's law day and night. The blessed man delights in God's law. We must set ourselves to discovering sin. Look for it. Look at your life. Study the law. Look at the things that you're doing and the, the things that you, you're connected to. This was the, often the, the caricature of the Puritans is that they were just so introspective and so, so uh, gloomy all the time because all they ever did was look at themselves and talk about sin. It wasn't unnecessary introspection. It was a desire to be holy. See, they understood who God was. They understood what Christ had done, and they understood that anybody who gets that longs to be holy as He is holy. So thirdly, the law gives us a clear sight of the need that we have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. You see, when we study the law, and the more and more and more we begin to understand just how easily, just how naturally we sin against God, just how often we trample His divine character under our feet, surely we're able to say at least how perfect our Lord Jesus Christ is in that He never once failed, never once failed to keep His Father's commandments. See, if we see so clearly our own sins, then we see so clearly the perfections of Christ, and then we see just how needful we are of that perfection. We see why He is such a great Savior. We see that we are great sinners, that we are in a great position of need. Our need is far bigger than we think. It's not just that we don't want to go to hell when we die. No, it's... it's unending, eternal punishment, just punishment for all of our sins. That's what we deserve. And so we have such, this, this such great need of a great Savior. The expansive magnitude of the desperate need of just one lost sinner is insurmountable. All that it would take to right all of the wrongs of just one sinner is more than we could ever imagine. You multiply that desperate need by all of the people of God throughout the ages and you will see this great chasm into which the single man, Jesus Christ, steps in with His perfect obedience and He bridges it. It's done. All of our need satisfied by the perfect obedience of one man. So as we come to the Lord's table, I would hope... Again, and it's been my prayer that we're all just reminded of our sin, our breaking of God's law, how, how common it happens, how often it happens, how easily we sin. And then it's to the table that we come as sinners to feast on His grace, 
the grace given to us in Christ. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the eternal Word of God was born as a man born under the law, and yet He kept the whole law for His people. And then He went to the cross and suffered the wrath of His Father in the place of His people as our substitute. Then He was raised from the dead as our justification, seated now at the right hand of the Father, and He says, come and eat. Sinners, come and eat. Receive grace. I know that you've sinned. I show you that you've sinned. The work of the Spirit is to say, you're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning. Look at Christ. Look at Him. Look at Christ. And so He invites us into communion with Him as a body in the Lord's Supper.